Let me tell you in advance how I'm going to close. Lest it come abruptly and, and you're put on the spot and feel pressured to make um, an unmeditated decision. I'm going to give you a chance at the end of the service to come forward for prayer, but not all of you, just a certain group. And I want you to be praying about whether you're in that group or not. And the group would be defined something like this. Um, if you already know that God has called you to change the place, the culture, the job that you presently have, to align yourself with his mission across the culture in a different way, and you're headed that way. But more broadly than that, I'm very interested in praying over whoever would assemble here at the end of the service, those of you for whom recently, perhaps just in this conference, perhaps in recent months, God has awakened something new by way of real serious openness to a cross-cultural vocational missions, whether in support or in direct church planting or some way, but you're not sure. And the prayer would be aimed toward bringing conviction and clarity to that sense of new openness and desire and eagerness that has awakened and you're not quite sure what to do with it. So, that's who we'll pray over at the end of the service. And you can be pondering, and if you're sitting beside a spouse, and you didn't have a chance yet to tell her what God's been doing, <clears throat> it might be good to whisper to one another about what your plan is at the end of the service. Now, before I pray and ask God to help us one more time here in this wider conference, let me tell you this. Uh, we've been together twice now, uh, talking about the goal of God in bringing uh, for himself among the nations uh, to be known and to be praised and to be enjoyed and to be feared. And we talked this morning about why that mission must exist in terms of missions because uh, there's so much sin and so much failure to relate to God that way in the world. And I just want to strike the note tonight before I begin on this topic that this is going to get done. This is not up for grabs, this mission. This is not hanging on whether I'm effective here or whether this church is committed here. This is going to happen. If you don't get involved, he will pass this church over. If I don't get involved, I'll just be left behind. This is going to happen because it's God's mission. He has simply said... This gospel of the kingdom will be preached as a testimony throughout the whole world to all the nations, and then the end will come. Those are not if this happens or if that happens. That's what God's going to get done. So I don't want to leave you with a sense of, oh, poor God, we can't get Baptists or Presbyterians on the page here. That is not the mentality of our sovereign God at all. The question is, do you want to be left behind in the most glorious enterprise in the world, dinking around in your job, or do you want to be on board with God in his great enterprise? That's the only question 
for you. And you can be on board as a sender, and you can be on board as a goer, and I'm specifically fishing for goers tonight because Jesus said, pray the Lord of the harvest to send forth laborers. And he knew that some would have to stay in order to send them, and he knew that some would need to go. And I have no qualms about saying some of you are called by God. Just dumped water all over my thing here. Some of you are called by God to be goers, and some are definitely not to be goers, so that I intend at the end of the service that everybody in the pew not standing here have a clean conscience. But that some of you not have a clean conscience if you're not standing here. And God's got to decide which is which. So let's pray and ask him to get to work to continue doing what I don't doubt that he's been doing for months in some of your lives and perhaps 20 years in others. So Lord, you're out there. You know your people. You know them well. You position your troops to Dallas and you position them toward Damascus and then you change them and you send them to Rome, you send them to Spain, you send them to Afghanistan and China and Argentina and Korea and Cuba, Mexico, Panama. Lord, that's your business. It's not ours. So, Lord, I simply ask now for help for another 30 minutes or so here that you would come and help me speak the truth and let your spirit be on me and be on this people. And, Lord, you do your remarkable, wonderful, sovereign, divine recruitment and deployment, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Richard Vermbrand, one of my heroes, tells the story of a Cistercian monk in Italy. <clears throat> you pray for this voice. Got two more messages to go after this one. God's going to do it. Um, Cistercian monk, the Cistercians are an order of the Catholic Church in which uh, they spend their life in silence, except when they come together in corporate worship. They go into their little cubicles and they pray and they serve, and they don't ever talk, except when they praise or pray. A remarkable kind of discipline. And one of them was asked on a television interview in which he was allowed, I guess it was an abbot or something like that, that had the right to do this. This is the question. What if you were to realize at the end of your life that atheism is true? And there is no God. Tell me, what if that were true? The answer came, holiness, silence, and sacrifice are beautiful in themselves, even without promise of reward. I still will have used my life well. Zig Ziglar said the same thing recently. I was asked about what if Christianity turns out not to be true? And he said, it's a good life. Anyway. Now, when I read that, I was deeply troubled for this reason. It's exactly the opposite of what Paul says. 
1 Corinthians 15, 19. If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all men most to be pitied. That's exactly the opposite of what the Cistercian monk and Zig Ziglar said. If there's no resurrection, the life I have chosen to live is pitiable, and I would never choose it. That's shocking. That's really shocking. Why didn't Paul say, even if Christ is not raised from the dead, even if there is no God, even if there's no resurrection, a life of love and labor and sacrifice is a good life and a beautiful life. And I would choose it. And the reason it's so shocking is because I believe that all over American evangelicalism, that's exactly the way Christianity is sold. It'll be a good life. Marriage will go better. Kids will go better. Health might even go better. Job go better. Things go better. It's a good life. If it proves to be a delusion in the end, doesn't really matter because if you never wake up, who cares? It's been a good life. Why does Paul not talk that way? Why does Paul say, if there's no heaven, if there's no resurrection, we Christians are fools to live the way we live? That trouble you? Your lifestyle? If there is no resurrection, then we are of all men most to be pitied. You know what Paul said we should do if there's no resurrection? In verse 32 of 1 Corinthians 15, he says, Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. What do you mean by that? He didn't mean let's all become debauched. Let's all become drunk gluttons. Because drunks and gluttons are just as much to be pitied as Christians if there's no resurrection from the dead. What he meant by that was not let's all become drunkards and let's all become gluttons. He meant I'm not going to pummel my body anymore. I'm not going to turn down gifts from the churches anymore. I'm not going to risk my life day after day in angry mobs and on the sea anymore. I'm not going to endure with backsliding, hypocritical, hard-to-get-along-with Christians anymore. I'm not going to go without food and sleep day and night anymore. I'm not going to go to any hard places anymore. I'm just going to have a normal American, middle-class, safe, secure, comfortable, suburban lifestyle. That's all I'm going to have. That's what eat, drink, and be merry means. It's just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. It's just live like 
All the advertisements tell us to live. Paul didn't talk that way. He never said the key to maximizing this worldly material comforts is to become a Christian. Talk just the opposite. Paul's relationship to Christ was a call to suffer. My main point tonight is the Great Commission will not be finished without the suffering of God's people. Not just because from time to time persecution arises, but because it is in the design of God that the way the gospel will spread is by means of suffering. It's a design. It's an evangelistic, missiological strategy that comes from God that the gospel will spread through suffering. And if we say we will do all we can to minimize and escape our suffering, then we will not participate in the spreading of the gospel to the unreached peoples of the world. Now, my text is not 1 Corinthians 15. My text is Colossians 1.24. So I invite you to please turn there with me. While you're turning there, I'll read you one more verse from 1 Corinthians 15. Paul said, If the dead are not raised, why am I in peril every hour? I protest, brothers, by my exultation in you. I die every day. You hear him protesting? You hear him saying what his life is? I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. I die every day. I make choices in my ministry to lay some comforts down and some conveniences down and some securities down every day that I would never lay down if there were no resurrection from the dead. Well, that's quite a call. So let's look at the missionary ministry significance of that call in verse 24 of Colossians 1. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings. This is a crazy man. Because almost every one of us would have to write, I murmur when I suffer. I complain when I suffer. I bellyache when I suffer. I blame when I suffer, especially if it comes from another person. I blame and I criticize and I think vengeance when I suffer. This is a different kind of human being. This is a Christian. Here. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I share on behalf of his body, he's gathering from all the peoples now, the church, in fulfilling or filling up that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. 
What does that mean? I, in my body and in my sufferings, fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. So Jesus chose to suffer. Philippians 2, laid aside everything, embraced humanity, was obedient even unto death, the death on the cross, the most excruciating way to die ever devised by human beings, and he designed his whole life to get there. And something was lacking. It's almost blasphemous, isn't it? I mean, this is heresy to talk like this. Something lacking in the afflictions of Jesus. Well, surely it does not mean something is lacking in the worth and the atoning value of the cross. No, 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 no. Nothing lacking in the worth and the value and the atoning work of Jesus. Nothing, nothing. Well, what's lacking? What could the sufferings of Paul fill up in the sufferings of Jesus? Let me give you an answer and then show you where I'm getting it. My answer is this. What's lacking in the sufferings of Jesus on behalf of those for whom he died among all the peoples is a personal presentation of his love through suffering. Those who were there for the three years of his ministry, they saw him deny himself and lay down his life and ultimately hang on the cross voluntarily when he could have called twelve legion of angels to do vengeance on these enemies and he chose to stay there to save the world. They saw it. But what was lacking was the extension of it and the presentation of it in some kind of visible manifest form of suffering so that people could see the suffering of Christ and the love of God in Christ touching their lives. That's what's lacking. And that's what we're called to give the world. We are not called mainly to be a come-see religion, whereby we have a nice lifestyle and a nice comfortable situation and nice marriage and nice kids and nice health and nice retirement programs, so maybe somebody will envy us in what our religion. That's not Christianity. That's not Christianity. Christianity is to lay things aside that the world depends on and at some cost to ourselves be the suffering of Jesus to extend the love of God through our sacrifice to others. And in doing it, rejoice. Now, where do I get that answer? I'm not making that up. Is that in the Bible, that, I, that interpretation? I'll show you where I'm getting it. I'm going to get it from Philippians chapter 2, very nearby in your Bibles, if you want to look at it with me. 
Here's, what I, here's the way I tried to answer the question. This is a methodological lesson for you here. I took the phrase, fill up what is lacking, and I looked up in Greek uh, the term fill up, and I looked up complete, and I said, now, are there other places in the Bible where those two ideas come together? Filling up what is lacking and completing in the Greek. So you do a little word search on your computer, and you find them, and they're not many. And the clearest one is right here in Philippians 2. And you watch what light this sheds on our text. Now, in Philippians 2, you see in verse 30, a man named... Um, we'll get to verse 30 in a minute. There's a man named Epaphroditus here in this paragraph. Epaphroditus is from Philippi. Philippi loves Paul. Paul is in Rome. They want to send material support to their missionary, Paul. Sustain him in his imprisonment in Rome. They love him. They love him. They're not goers, they're senders. That's good. Paul never criticizes them for it. Epaphroditus takes the goods, maybe money, maybe books, maybe food. I don't know what it was, but he took it. And at the risk of his life, Paul says, at the cost of almost dying, he brings it to Paul. You see verse 27. Sick unto the point of death he was, and God spared him mercifully, lest Paul have grief upon grief in his imprisonment. <clears throat> then in verse 29, Paul tells the church in Philippi to honor Epaphroditus when he comes back to them. And he gives his reason in verse 30. Let's read it. This is the key place. Parallels verse 24 of Colossians. He says, because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete, here they are, complete, fill up, it's the same word, what is deficient, it should have been translated lacking in order to keep it the same, it's the same Greek, complete what is lacking in your service to me. So here we have it. Here we have the parallel. Now the question is, what did it mean here? If Paul says my desire and call is to fill up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ, and here it says with the same Greek construction, his mission was to fill up what is lacking in the service of the Philippians to Paul, what did he do? Now, I went to a commentary to see if anybody saw what I saw, because I don't like to be alone in my interpretations. That feels risky. So I went to an old one, Marvin Vincent, from 150 years ago, and here's what I read. And I said, yes! Yes, this is it. This is, we got it here. And it's, it's not an unusual interpretation. It's regular. It's normal. Here's a quote from Marvin Vincent. The gift to Paul was a gift of the church as a body. It was a sacrificial offering of love. What was lacking was the church's presentation of this offering in person. This was impossible, and Paul represents Epaphroditus as supplying this lack by his affectionate and zealous ministry. Now, you get it? You see what's going on here? You see the analogy? 
Here you have a sacrificial love being manifested, but they're a thousand miles away, or whatever it is, from Philippi to Rome. I don't know how far it is, probably not a thousand. Long way away. And they want somebody who's way far away from their love and can't see their love, can't touch their love, can't feel their love, to know their love and to feel their love and touch their love. And they send an emissary, a representative, embodying their love. And he almost dies in the process. And when he gets there, Paul sees their love in his love and the gifts come to him. And the Philippians' sacrifice is completed by the presentation to those for whom they sacrificed. Now just translate that into Colossians 1.24. Christ dies on a cross for all the sheep scattered throughout all the nations of the world. You'll never go to a people group where there are people for whom He has not died. And you then have Him saying, as the Father has sent Me, so send I you. If they call the master of the house Beelzebul, what will they call those in his household? Now go and complete what is lacking. Well, what's lacking? What's lacking is that Jesus would love to get his arms around people in Uzbekistan and love to bleed in front of them. He would love to present Himself crucified before them, but He has ordained for wise and sovereign purposes not to do it in person, but to do it through His people called the body of Christ. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute Me? when you strike a believer. And therefore, how do we complete this lack? Answer, Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings on behalf of that body of Christ and thereby fill up what is lacking in his afflictions the design of God to finish the Great Commission among all the peoples of the world in all the closed, creative access countries of the world. There's no such thing as a closed country. You can get in. You may not be able to get out. But you can get in. And all this crazy American talk today, would my kids be safe? What's that got to do with it? Is it against the law to preach the gospel? I think if you ask Paul that question, is it safe in Philippi? He would say, what, what is that? I don't understand the question. Well, I mean, I mean, is, is the likelihood high that you could be beaten and, and imprisoned and maybe die? You say, I don't understand your question. What, 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 what does that have to do with it? 
something wrong with us. There's something wrong with us in America. You, you can't imagine how acculturated you are in this Disneyland called America. You can't imagine how Americanized you are. And maybe this one little trip of this cricket in this pulpit will do one little millimeter to wake you up to the fact that New Testament Christianity is He who would be my disciple must take up His cross and follow Me. You are called to die. The Gospel will not reach the unreached peoples without martyrs. It won't reach the unreached peoples without the death of a husband and the death of a wife and the death of some children. What's that got to do with it? So, I rejoice. I rejoice in it. Because I rejoice in hope. Let me draw this to a close with some illustrations. Stories maybe are better than expositions sometimes. I was in... Uh, Deerfield, Illinois, at Trinity Seminary a couple of years ago, several years ago, working on that missions book, the green book. And I was, I was hiding. Didn't want anybody to know I was there because I was working all day long, every day, one month, away from my family and kids, just going to get this thing done. And they had given me a little room there. And I heard that J. Oswald Sanders, an old great missionary statesman, was over at the seminary in the chapel. And I wanted to hear him, because I, I take opportunities to hear uh, my heroes. And uh, so I snuck in the back, and I listened to this 89-year-old missionary statesman, still functioning strong. He's died in the meantime. And he spoke, and he closed his message with a story. And incidentally, I'll just tell you what he said about his age, for all of you older folks now. This is very... Very, very shocking and very stirring. He's 89, fully functional, traveling, no let up at 89, and articulate and clear-headed and challenging me, and I'm, what, at that time, maybe late 40s or something. And he said, uh, God's been so good to me. My love being involved in the missionary enterprise. And since I was 70... Looking back, 19 years. Since I was 70, God's given me the strength to write a book a year. And I thought, I'd love to write a book before I'm dead, you know. <laughs> and here's a man pushing 90 who at 70 didn't go to Arizona to golf. He didn't buy into this crazy, wicked American retirement scheme by which people prepare to meet King Jesus by frittering their life away in RVs all around the country. It is a tragedy. It is such a waste of humanity to take a 65-year-old man or woman strong and intelligent and tell them to play 
Why do you think senior discounts on airlines exist? I tell you, it ain't to get to Arizona, it's to get to Afghanistan. Cheap. Or some other place. Well, here's a story he told. That was a parenthesis. He told the story of an indigenous missionary who uh, walked barefoot from village to village in India that he had known personally and his hardships were many, and after a long day, he arrived at a village, and he walked through the village uh, sharing the gospel. He was tired. He thought maybe he'd sleep and wait until the next day, but for some reason, he felt driven. So he walked in the village, and he gathered a little crowd, and he told them the gospel. And they were really quite unkind and disrespectful, booed his laugh, and drove him out of the city. Didn't want him in the city. And he felt miserable and rejected and hopeless and lay down under a tree and went to sleep exhausted. And as the dusk came, the whole city came out. And uh, he woke up suddenly and the chief men of the city were looking down at him. And uh, he thought, well, this is it. You know, they're going to do something terrible here. And one of the chief men said, uh, we came out to look at you and when we saw your blistered feet, we decided you must be a holy man and that we did a bad thing in not listening to your message and we would like you now to uh, tell us as a holy man who blistered your feet to get here what you wanted us to hear. And he said, uh, many received Christ. Now that's just a picture. It's a picture of the beautiful feet spoken of in Isaiah and it's a picture of completing in your sufferings the lack in the afflictions of Jesus. It was the feet, it was the blistered feet that looked like holiness, that looked like the cross, that looked like love, and that opened the hearts to receive what God was doing. And one other story, and then I'll close. Um, Michael Card, you know, a well-known singer, told this story wrote it up in Virtue magazine. He got it from the Billy Graham Amsterdam uh, itinerant evangelists meeting, not the most recent one last July, but rather several years ago, <clears throat> about Joseph the Maasai warrior. And this is what he said. I'll read it to you. One day, Joseph, who was walking along one of these hot, dirty African roads, met someone who shared the gospel of Jesus with him and then, there he, then and there he accepted Jesus as his Lord and Savior. The power of the Spirit began transforming his life, and he was filled with such excitement and joy that the first thing he wanted to do was return to his own village and there tell them the good news to the members of his own tribe. Joseph began going from door to door, telling everyone he met about the cross of Jesus and salvation it offered, expecting to see their faces lighten up the way his had. To his amazement, the villagers not only didn't care, they became violent. The men of the village seized him, held him to the ground, while women beat him with strands of barbed wire. He was dragged from the village and left to die alone in the bush. Joseph somehow managed to crawl to a water hole, and there, after days of passing in and out of consciousness, found the strength to get up. 
He wondered about the hostile he wondered about the hostile reception he had received from the people he had known all his life. He decided he must have said something wrong, told the story of Jesus incorrectly, and after rehearsing the message he had first heard, he decided to go back and share his faith once more. Joseph limped into the circle of huts and began to proclaim Jesus. He died for you so that you might find forgiveness and come to know the living God, he pleaded. Again, he was grabbed by the men of the village and held while the women beat him, reopening the wounds that had just begun to heal. And once more, they dragged him unconscious from the village and left him to die. To have survived the first beating was truly remarkable. To live through the second was a miracle. Again, days later, Joseph woke in the wilderness, bruised, scarred, determined to go back. He returned to the small village, and this time they attacked him before he had a chance to open his mouth. As they flogged him for the third time, and as he began to speak of Jesus Christ, the Lord, and before he passed out, the last thing he saw was the women beginning to weep. This time, he awoke in his own bed. The ones who had so severely beaten him were now trying to save his life and nurse him back to health, and the entire village had come to Christ. End of quote. Now, I don't want to overstate the case here. There's a time to flee, and there's a time to die. And Paul did both. Sometimes he escaped in a basket, and sometimes he walked right into the mob. And only God knows when it's time to flee and when it's time not to flee and to suffer. So I don't want to overstate the case. The call is not to become a masochist. The call is to become a person of radical love with an understanding that the path of love regularly leads through pain. Whether you live in Dallas or whether you live in a harder place, if you make it your life's aim to minimize pain, you will be an unfaithful disciple at best. We must embrace pain when it comes. We must embrace it not as a surprise, but as normal, indeed as a strategy which God has for the nations. And when it comes, because of the great reward we have in heaven, we should rejoice. Remember what Hebrews 13 says? It says, let us go with him, bearing reproach with him outside the camp, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek a city which is to come. Let's go, let's go with him outside the camp, outside the comfort zone. Jim Elliott, we have t-shirts, we used to at Bethlehem t-shirts and written on the back, Jim Elliott's quote, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And that's the kind of spirit I try to breed among our teenagers among our young people, and our middle-aged people, our older people. He is no fool to give what he cannot keep, your life, to gain what you cannot lose, eternal life.